Now we will hear the word from Pastor Tom. Thanks, Jeremy. Good morning, everyone. Yesterday was a wonderful day of celebration. We had a number of uh, Cairn students graduate, quite a few from our church, Kai Matthews, Dave Saunders, one of our retired folks, Marty Brophy, went back and got his degree. Uh, one of our staff members' wives, Austin's wife, Davia. Anybody else here that graduated from Karen yesterday? I don't want to leave anybody out. No, not yet. But yet, but wait. And Pastor John Beagle. There we go. So we're really excited that uh, God's working in John's heart. This is not his final degree. He immediately is going right back in for the next degree. It's called the THM, the Master of Theology. So you can be in prayer for Michelle and the rest of the family. But we're thankful. If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to John chapter 20. It's really exciting, or chapter 21 rather. If you don't have a Bible, we've got plenty of extras. Our ushers will be glad to give you one. It's neat to just see the Lord working through his word as we're studying the Gospel of John, we had a guy I mentioned probably about five weeks ago, an atheist who started coming, and he started reading the Bible, and um, can't stop. He's so excited, and he now has become a convert and has put his faith and trust in Christ. So God's Word is, is working powerfully, and we're praising the Lord. It's just a joy to be able to read the Word together and see the Spirit at work. So Join me as we pray, and we're going to finish the Gospel of John this morning. Father, thank you for the Bible. Lord, thank you that it's true, it's life-changing, and that your Spirit will use your Word in ways that we can't even imagine. So bless your Word and strengthen us as we listen to Jesus and learn to follow and trust his Word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Last week we saw that Jesus made a number of resurrection appearances, one of them on the beach in which he made breakfast for the disciples, and then he began to restore Peter who had denied him. And in his restoration, Jesus affirmed to Peter his commission, particularly to not just reach lost people, but to shepherd and help Christians to grow. But immediately after speaking to him about his commission, Jesus then makes a prediction a prediction about Peter's death. And this morning we're going to look at three things as we wind down John. First of all, a prediction about Peter's death. Secondly, confusion about John's death. A rumor started. And then third, a confession about Jesus' life. So let's begin with a prediction about Peter's death in verses 18 through 22. Jesus had just told him in verse 17, tend my sheep. But now in verse 18, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself. It's just another way of dress yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Before we were ever born, the Bible teaches that God has already counted out the days he has for us. Psalm 139 says in verse 16, in your book were written all the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was none of them. 
Now, as we get older, we begin to think a little bit more about leaving this world, and that's only natural as we start to anticipate that we're not going to live forever. But even when we're young, it's a good idea to be reminded that we shouldn't assume we're going to live a long life. Proverbs 27.1 says this, Don't boast about tomorrow because you don't know what a day will bring forth. And as much as none of us thinks it would happen to us, it happens that people expire just at God's time. Now, in the Old Testament, God would occasionally let someone know that they were going to die, like God told Elijah that he was going to die soon. Sometimes he would make an announcement of a coming judgment. He would tell an evil prophet or somebody how he was going to die, by a stampede or something like that. But Jesus revealed to Peter how he was going to die, but he sort of gave him some space here because he said, when you were younger, when you're older. So, so on the one hand, Peter... Peter knew he wasn't going to die right away. On the other hand, he knew he was going to die by crucifixion. And there's a couple ways we know that. Number one, because Jesus said someone will stretch out your hands, historians have, have found that that phrase was a reference to crucifixion because that's how they would lay a person down before they crucified him, and they would stretch out their hands, and then they would bind them and before ultimately nailing them to a cross. And then later in the... In the history of the church, one church, or church father said that Peter died in Rome, bound to a cross, probably under Nero, and then Tertullian said in the 200s that Peter was crucified, and then a long time after that in church history, there's this record that began to spring up that Peter actually was crucified upside down. Now, I always taught that as gospel fact, only to find out that that rose up so much later in the history of the church that there's reason to be a little bit suspicious when all of a sudden it popped up that much later. But the point is, Jesus told him, you're going to die by crucifixion. Interestingly, that John uses this phrase signifying by what kind of death, because that's the same phrase he used twice to talk about Jesus' crucifixion. Now, I wonder, as I thought about this, would you like to know when you're going to die? Would you like to know how you're going to die? As I thought about it, I could see some of the advantages, but I'd prefer to take a pass. I'll just trust that I know this much, that I'm going to die not a second before God wants me to, and I'm not going to live a second longer than God wants me to. The Bible teaches that one of the joys of being a Christian is we don't need to be afraid to die. In fact, it's very interesting here that John adds, this death was the death by which, now notice carefully, by which he would glorify God. Can you, can you go back to the, to the previous slide? The death by which he would glorify God, verse 19. So I want you to think about that for a moment. It's helpful to remember that earlier in John, John spoke of the death of Jesus as a direct means to glorify God. In John chapter 12, Jesus, as he thought about the fact that he was about to be crucified, he said, now my soul has become troubled. But then in, 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 in courage, he said, but what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. So then he prayed something really remarkable. As he knew he was about to be crucified, he said, Father, glorify your name. And then to, to, to show his approval, God the Father spoke from heaven and he said, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. 
And so the cross of Christ is the ultimate means by which God is glorified. But by extension, there's a particular sense in which anyone who dies for God's cause or the advancement of the gospel for righteousness sake who dies as a martyr in a unique way, glorifies God. So Peter began to understand this, and later when he, after learning this from Jesus, he wrote in 1 Peter 4, as persecution was, was increasing and people were anticipating dying for Christ, he said, if you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory in God rests on you. He said, make sure that you don't suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But, he said, if anyone as a Christian suffers, he shouldn't be ashamed, but in that name, he's to glorify God. And so it's unlikely that most of us will be called to die a martyr's death. But we ought not to rule that out. For there are many who are, are, are being martyred in our day. Right now on planet Earth, daily people are dying for Christ. And it's worthwhile to consider that Christians should pray that if we're ever asked to do that, that we have thought about it and prayed about it ahead of time. It's not because we're living in the midst of a third world country or, or the, the, uh, the, the places where people are anticipating dying that we should never let this cross our screen. In fact, Paul thought about it in, in Philippians 1. He said... This is my earnest expectation and hope, Philippians 1.20, that in nothing I'll be put to shame, but in everything Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For, for to me, he said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so he had settled in his mind. and He prayed and hoped that if he was called to die, that he would glorify God through his death. And sometimes we get too caught up in that, ooh, what if I'm going to be called to, to glorify God in my death? I could tell you how you could probably answer that. You don't need to ask, will you live for God at your death? You could solve that by saying, I'll live for God in my life. Because if you surrender to God now to follow him, you've already given your life to Christ. And so if he asks at the end for you to take it, you've already settled that. So we ought to pray for others who are being persecuted. Revelation 12, 11, pray that they will be like this. It says, they overcame Satan because of the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. And they didn't love their life even when faced with death. Martin Luther sang about it in A Mighty Fortress. He said, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill. But God's truth abideth still and his kingdom is forever. But as I thought about that, I thought, but wait, is this just limited to people who die a martyr's death. And I'd like to suggest that each one of us can glorify God in our death. Somebody once said it this way, you could tell a lot of person by how they live, a lot about them, but, but you could also tell something about them by how they die. And I think it's worthwhile for us to consider that one day we may die a slow death or a sudden death. But as we have opportunity, God, take away my fear. Help me to trust you. Help me to, to give praise to you. Help me to testify to you. Help me to honor you both in my life and in my death. It's not something you have to wait for, but you can pray for now. And so, interestingly, as P 
Peter sort of gets this bomb dropped on him, like, go feed my sheep. Oh, by the way, did I tell you how you're going to die? Peter, like so many of us, is more worried about everyone else's business. And so, as Jesus says to him at the end of verse 19, follow me, we'll go to the next slide. Immediately, Peter turning around saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. And so, so Peter said to Jesus, verse 21, Lord, what about this man? Now, it's interesting because some commentators do something that I think is kind of funny there. They take Jesus' words up at the top there, verse 19, follow me, as just like, just kind of a casual thing, like, hey, come here a minute. Hey, follow me, I want to talk to you. As though there's nothing formal here, like a commissioning. It's just like, hey, um, come here, Peter, I want to talk to you. And then John, sort of like on, hey, wait, what are you guys talking about? Kind of comes behind, and he's kind of like, what are you guys talking about? I don't think that's the point here. I think that, that Jesus, as he was restoring Peter, is recommissioning him. I think Peter knew exactly what he meant when he said, follow me. Because this wasn't the first time he heard this. Three and a half years earlier, he heard this. And we read in Scripture that he left his nets and he followed him. But as is often the case, we want to know about everybody else's business. And we'll come back to that. But I do want you to know that Jesus says, hey, listen, why are you concerned about that? You follow me. Sometimes people hear the Bible, boy, my, a word from Jesus, my spouse needed to hear that. Or, boy, I wish my cousin was here. And Well, well Lord, if you're asking me to do that, what about that? So, I mean, they need to change too. They need, and Jesus is like, hey, what, what is that to you? I want you to notice when he says it the second time in, in verse 22, you follow me. And that pronoun is emphatic in the, in, in the original language. So he's going, hey, listen, just picture Jesus pointing at you and you and you and you and you. You. This is between you and me, nobody else. You follow me. And at the end of the sermon, I want to come back to that and talk about who is this Jesus that he tells us to follow him? And why should I do that? And what does that look like in my life? But we'll start out then by just saying, okay, we see a prediction about Peter's death, but now we're going to look briefly at confusion about John's death. You see, Jesus said in verse 22, if I want him to remain until I come, what's that to you? You follow me. Therefore, this saying went out among the brethren that the disciple would not die. Now, wait a minute. That's not what he said. Jesus didn't say he wouldn't die. Jesus didn't say that, that he would not die. He just said, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? I have a cartoon that somebody gave me, and it has Jesus speaking and sitting on a rock, and he's talking to these great crowds, and he goes, now listen up, everybody, because I don't want there to be four versions of this. <laughs> You'll get it later. <laughs> but you know what strikes me about that is that even the early church, the original hearers of Jesus, it didn't take long until the information became misinformation. And that's, that's not a new phenomenon. It's not, there's not just fake news in our culture. It started way back even before Jesus. But here's why I think it's important to take a few moments to make a couple observations about how quickly misinformation spread. 
think as Christians we need to realize that not everything you read on the internet, you know this, not every book you read, not every sermon you hear, not every prediction that someone tells us that God said to them is reliable. So we have to be reminded to listen with care and discernment. Here's a couple areas. Number one, it's important to remember that you shouldn't just believe every statement people make about what the Bible teaches or about what God supposedly told them. I think a lot of people learned that the hard way when they hitched up with, with Harold Camping and they sold their stuff and said, Jesus is coming. And they realized, Jesus didn't say that. But then another example might be television preachers who get up and they tell you, listen, Jesus said by his stripes we're healed. So therefore, God doesn't want you to be sick. He doesn't want you to be poor. He wants you to be rich and healthy and prosperous and have your best life now and you won't... He doesn't want you to suffer. He doesn't have to have enough faith. That's not what the Bible teaches. Another example would be these supposed Christian churches today claiming that only certain forms of homosexuality are wrong, but same-sex marriage is, is, is endorsed by God and approved by God. And Hey, we're a Christian church. We're not hateful. This is not new. Peter said in 2 Peter 3 that there will be false teachers who will twist the scriptures to their own destruction. And so we need to be careful when we, we hear something that someone says, this is what the Bible teaches. In Acts chapter 17, it says, the Bereans received the word with eagerness, but then they searched the scriptures to make sure that's what the Bible says. So don't believe everything you hear about the Bible or what God told somebody. But secondly, don't believe everything you hear on the news. That goes without too much uh, repetition, But the third thing is don't believe everything you hear about other Christians or Christian organizations. I don't know why. I don't think it's unique to Christianity, but stories get spread, gossip gets cast out there, and pretty soon we start simply being gullible and buying into things before we stopped and thought about it and checked it out. I want to give you a, a personal caution as you are trying to disciple and help people. Usually the first one to tell their story, it's very convincing. And intentionally, or even unintentionally, they leave out details. So if someone tells you about their problems and who did what to them, bear in mind that there might just be another side to that story, especially when it comes to married couples. Proverbs 18, 17 says, The first to plead his case seems right. They did what? They said what? But Proverbs says, until someone else comes along and examines him, then the other person says, but did they tell you that they said, and that they did, and you go, oh, hmm. And so we learn as Christians to, to be careful, to be discerning, to listen, to suspend our judgments, to do some fact-checking, <clears throat> and to understand that the Bible's the ultimate authority of absolute truth. A couple other things to note here in, in this confusion about John is, Maybe Jesus is clarifying here that, you know what, we have to leave room for unity and diversity. Like John and Jesus had a very, or Peter and John had a different calling, right? And so if that's the case, maybe even as early as when John's writing, people were already attaching themselves to certain apostles. We, we see this in Corinthians. I'm of Paul. I'm of Peter. And so perhaps John is, is reminding us that John and Peter and, and, and Peter are both people that you can learn from. 
Don't assume that only our church or your pastor or this Christian organization is the only one on the straight and narrow. God uses different leaders with different gifts and different callings and unique ministries, unique manifestations of the gospel. And as Carson points out here, the relationship between Peter and John needed to be understood. The Jesus who loved Peter and John called them to serve in different ways, but he's passionately concerned about the unity of the flock. And then there might be one more thing that we, we could perhaps draw out when Jesus says to Peter, hey, um, pardon me, but what is that to you? And you go, yeah, that's right. Mind your own beeswax. Judge not lest you be judged. Leave me be like leaves of three. And you're like, well, wait a minute. I think it's important as Christians that we try to keep a balance between accountability, between being my brother's keeper, but at the same time learning that I need to mind my own spiritual business. And you're like, well, how do you do that? Well, my sense is that as Christians, we, we tend to go to extremes. There are some churches that they want to know what you had for dinner. You know, they want to know what, give us a report of what you read this week and, and what television shows you watched. But at the same time, I think there are others who are, who are wanting to have no accountability. Galatians chapter 6 gives us a good balance. It says, brothers, if anyone is caught in sin, you who are spiritual are to restore them with a spirit of gentleness. In other words, when we become aware that someone's in sin, we don't go, oh, well, that's not my business. It is our business. We love one another. If you find me in sin, it's love me enough to come to me. Don't believe everything you hear, but come and check it out. The Bible says don't receive an accusation against an elder unless there's two or three witnesses, but none of us should think that we're beyond any sense of accountability. That's why some people don't want to join a church. They don't want to be in a small group. They don't want anybody holding them accountable for how they treat their spouse or, or whether they're faithful to the Lord or whether they're getting drunk or, or doing things that violate the word of God. But at the same time, some Christians are too nosy and busybodies. They want to know everybody else's business. 1 Peter 4, verse 11 says, Make it your ambition, this is a good verse, to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your own hands. Okay? 2 Thessalonians 3, 11, Paul says, We hear there are some among you who aren't working at all, but acting like busybodies. Paul warned in Timothy 5, 13, he said, some people are learning to be idle, going around not merely idle, but gossips and busybodies, talking about other things not proper to mention. So it's a good reminder when people start blah, blah, blah. You're like, wait a minute. Have you talked to them about this? You sure that's true? And sometimes just kind of giving people grace. But at the same time, not to just let everybody run out of control. So those are just a couple thoughts, but I want us to look briefly at John's final confession about Jesus' life. We've got prediction of Peter's death, confusion about John's death, and then just a final word about Jesus' life. He says, listen, number one, I want to make a confession here. Everything I'm telling you is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Did I stutter? He says, this is a disciple who's testifying to these things. He says, everything I wrote in this book, we know that his testimony is true, and there's all kind of discussion about who's we there. Is it the elders in Ephesus? Is it just kind of that we that we just saw when we read 1 John? We want you to have fellowship. But John is just reminding us that this book is the truth. And everything it teaches is to be believed and trusted. 
regardless of what your background is or what you used to believe. But he also makes a confession about the works of Jesus. He said, there's many other things which Jesus did, which they, if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. So I think what John's saying is, if I tried to write down everything Jesus did and everybody else tried to write it down, it would be inexhaustible. But can I put your mind at ease? Have you ever walked into a library and gone, why don't I just kill myself because I can't read all these books? <sighs> Thank God that he hasn't given us a library of 10,000 books. But he's given us the word of God. And the Bible says the secret things belong to God, but the things that are revealed belong to us. So when someone comes along with some new shroud of evidence that they found about some work of Jesus that isn't in the Bible, don't waste your time with that. We have this book. And the Bible says God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. God has entrusted the, the truth of the gospel to us. Peter says, you have the more sure words of prophecy to which you do well to pay attention as a light shining in a dark place. Believe this book. Trust this book. Study this book and find God transforming you. But I want us to conclude by going back to some some concluding thoughts on that phrase from Jesus. You, hey you, follow me. Let me remind you as we finish John, who is this Jesus who we're called to follow? Because the reality is we're all following something, right? Many of us are simply following our own desires. We're following our own ambitions. <clears throat> we're following those things which we think will bring us the most happiness and meaning to our lives. So if I'm not happy with this spouse, I trade them in for another one. If I don't like this job, then I just leave that and move to this one. There's nothing wrong with changing jobs. But so many people are just running around with this hedonistic sense that life is designed just to find what makes me happy. And so we're following our own ambitions. And then we turn on a couple good pop or country songs that tell us to follow our heart. But can I tell you, that's disastrous. The Jesus that we're being invited to follow, we learn from John, is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, the unique divine Son of God, the one who created all things, and without him nothing has come into being, the one who is equal with the Father, the one who said, I have come into this world as light into darkness, the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to God but through me. The one who said one day God has entrusted all judgment to me. So if you're wondering which judge you're going to get, it's me, says Jesus. The same one who said, if you don't believe in me, you'll die in your sins. The same one who said, I've come into this world to bear witness to the truth. The same one who said, I've come to give you an abundant life. This is the Jesus of the Bible who we're called to follow. But secondly, I want to just stop and ask this question. Well, why should I follow him? Who does he think he is? Well, he's very clear on who he is. But I might remind you that we ought to follow him because he said, I came and I laid down my life for you. That we ought to follow him because he didn't come into the world to condemn us like we deserve, but that the world through him might be saved. 
We ought to follow him because he said, if you follow me, you'll come to know the truth and the truth will set you free. We ought to follow him because as Peter said, he has the words of eternal life. We ought to follow him because he's a good shepherd and he says, if you follow me, you'll hear my words and you'll follow me and I'll give you eternal life and you'll never perish. And if those positive incentives aren't helpful, how about this one? If you don't follow him, he said, you'll die in your sins. But I think it's worthwhile to close with this final thought to ask, well, what does it really mean to follow Jesus? Because he's talking to you right now. And you and he and, and I need to sort it out on a very personal level. And so I want to start by reminding you that, first of all, to follow Jesus means to believe and trust that his words are the truth. Not just intellectually assenting that, yeah, there is a Jesus, but trusting and depending on his words. Casting my soul upon him and saying, Lord, I receive you, I receive your words. I believe. Because the Bible says the moment you receive him, to them he gives the right to be children of God. We learn to depend on the death of Jesus. He's the Lamb of God who took away my sins. And so I go, I'm not going to go to purgatory. And I don't have to try to do good works to get to heaven. And I don't have to do any penance. I believe the words of Jesus and I believe that he's my Lord and Savior. But secondly, it's not just a willingness to trust him. It's a willingness to follow him. If we trust him, we must be willing to surrender to him. Jesus said in John 12, if anyone serves me, let him follow me. What does it mean to follow him? It means, number one, to make it your life's ambition to live for him and not for yourself. This is a daily journey. The Bible says I must take up my cross, die to myself, and live for him. Not in order to get to heaven, but because I'm going there. There are so many people who say, hey, I want the hell insurance part, but I don't want to follow. This is why people are going to hell. Not because they haven't read Tim Tebow's eyeballs, John 3.16, but because John 3.19 says this is the condemnation that men love darkness rather than light. Their deeds are evil and they want to dicker with God. Well, what do I have to give up? Give everything up. Give yourself to Christ and he will forgive you. But then he will transform you. He gives you a new heart. And you begin to follow him. And following him means that I learn to obey him, to become like him. To seek, as John said in chapter 3, that he might increase and I might decrease. To seek to, to think about him as he washed the disciples' feet. He said, I'm your Lord and teacher. I gave you an example. To be a Christian is to be a Christ follower, a forgiven disciple who's seeking to be like him. And who's seeking to do what he said. If Jesus commanded it, he said, why do you call me Lord if you won't do what I say? And for some of you, you, you like the part about believing in him. It's the part about following him that isn't sitting well with you. But lastly, I not just trust him and I'm, I'm becoming like him, but I embrace his commission. You see, the call to follow him is both personal in that he might say, Tom, you go here. You go there. You get involved in this ministry. I want you to do this. 
It's personal. It's practical. It's not just, hey, what are you doing for Jesus? Well, nothing in particular. What are you doing for Jesus? Right? He'll show you if you're, if you're wanting to follow him. It's powerful. Jesus said in John 20, receive the spirit as the Father sent me, so send I you. So let me remind you and, and challenge you and myself to remember that as a Christian, I have been commissioned by Jesus. And there's two things he wants us to do. First of all, he wants us to passionately pursue lost people. Jesus said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must gather them also. How does he gather them? Through us. Through our prayers. God's not asking us all to run down to the train and start preaching. You're going to hell. You better get saved. 80% of people that come to Christ come through friends or family members. So we're talking about your neighbors, your co-workers, and your kooky relatives that we all have, right? And some of them have kooky relatives like us. <laughs> the people in our sphere of life, Jesus says, follow me. Now pray for them. Build relationships with them. Don't just go wipe your nose and hand them a track say, you want to go to, to preach? You know, just love them and get them into your home and spend time with them and pray that God will give you an opportunity to talk to them about Jesus. So he calls us to, to go out and, and reach people. But then once they come into the flock, then he says, listen, here's your commission. I want you to love them passionately. These are your brothers and sisters. A new commandment I give to you to love one another. And for those of you that are just attenders, see you next Sunday morning. You're not fully in the game. We want you to get engaged. We want you to be in relationships. We want to connect you with other people. And, and while you might say, ah, nobody connected me. We can't run around and, 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 you know, read your mind whether you're connected. Just say, hey, help me to get connected. I want to meet some people. I want to get engaged. I want to be a part of the church family and, and grow and, and help others to grow. We saw last week that we're called to feed the sheep. We're called to wash one another's feet, to serve and share our time and our resources and our love and to help Christians to come to maturity so that they can go out and help others. So this morning, I want you to stop and, and, and picture Jesus pointing to you and saying, you, put your name in there, you follow me. And what will that look like? For some of you are like, oh, I already did that years ago. I, I threw my stick in the fire at camp. I'm not talking about years ago. Peter did it three and a half years ago. But Jesus is like, we need to recalculate here. And even I need to be challenged Tom, life is not about what you want. It's about following Jesus. And what difference will that make as we surrender to him and let his spirit bring living water out of our lives? I hope you're encouraged, convicted, and challenged. And pray that our church will be full of Christ followers who are sent out in the power of the Holy Spirit and making a difference. And instead of going, only after my spouse changes, Jesus says, don't worry about what is that to you. You follow me. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Jesus. I cannot awaken the dead. When I call men to follow Christ, only you can awaken them. Oh, Father, would you give them ears to hear? Would you cause men and women, boys and girls, to give their lives to Christ in faith? and to become his followers. For those of you that are just beginning the journey, 
the first thing the Lord wants you to do is confess your allegiance to come and tell us, I want to follow Jesus. Then to be baptized, to show your public willingness to identify with him. And then for the rest of the flock, Lord, may we grow in our love for you and our loyalty as we serve you together. We ask this for your glory. And I praise you, Jesus, for your mercy. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week. Be in prayer for our church as we anticipate going back on the, 9th or the 18th of June. Be sure to go online and look at our website. There's a new video that you can kind of get caught up on what the building looks like.